Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, welcome to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. This is season two, episode number 22, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Mr. Amit Katwala, award-winning writer and author of the highly acclaimed book, The Athletic Brain. In this episode, Amit will discuss how the art of anticipation and high-speed decision-making sets elite athletes' brains apart from the rest of us. He'll also touch on what happens in the brain when, when athletes overthink during competition, as well as review the connections between brain neuroplasticity, BDNF, and dopamine. Amit will share the power of learning by observation for skill acquisition, how to get into a flow state, strategies for performing under pressure, and much, much more. Great stuff here from Amit. You can link to some of the research papers discussed here uh, and his book at drbubs.com forward slash podcast, as well as my layups, these simple actionable tips. If you're interested in more on the impacts of the brain on performance, then definitely circle back to season one, episode number 21, with Dr. John Sullivan, physiologist and psychologist with over a decade of experience in high-performance sport. And if you want to dig into the importance of fats on brain development, then check out season one, episode number 46, with Nora Gedgaudis on the central role of dietary fat in forging the human brain. And of course, for more on meditation, season two, episode number 14, with Dr. Abhiman Yusud. If you're a new listener, thanks for tuning in. And of course, if you want to get caught up on all things that happened in the first season, then check out our highlights episode, which is number 52, a collection of clips from 15 top experts from season one. And of course, season two kicked off this past January, so you can check that out as well. If you're a regular listener and enjoying the information, please show your support by sharing on Facebook, reposting on Instagram, or retweeting on Twitter. It is a big, big help to the show, helps us to grow the community, and so we'll be very, very grateful if you could take a minute to do that. Okay, before we get started, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest deep ocean mineral water. Collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sports drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on deep ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by Inform Sport and Inform Choice. Check out totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. All right, on to the show, season two, episode number 22. Enjoy. My guest today is Amit Katwala award-winning sport, science, and technology writer, editor, speaker, and the author of the highly acclaimed book, The Athletic Brain. Amit, thanks so much for taking the time today. Hello. Well, listen, before we dive into this, um, I'm talking neuroscience, the brain, athletic performance. Can you tell listeners a little bit more about your background and how you became interested in this intersection between neuroscience and sport? So I, uh, I studied experimental psychology at university uh, and then uh, immediately uh, went off and became a sports journalist. So I, was, uh, I spent five or six years kind of interviewing some of the best athletes in the world, um, you know, trying to figure out what made them tick and what made them stand out. And 
more and more actually I realized that it was what I'd originally been interested in that was the defining characteristic of sporting success uh, that being psychology and the mental side of things and I suppose I was always more interested in the uh, rather than the kind of sports psychology in the traditional sense I was always more interested in almost the the biology of the brain and, and the sort of science behind why athletes are able to make decisions quicker and and the book seemed like a kind of natural combination of my two interests my interest in psychology and neuroscience and then my my experience of kind of talking to all these great athletes and, and what I tried to do in the athletic brain was to you know kind of highlight some of the great academic work that was going on using examples and interviews with athletes yes phenomenal phenomenal book and of course I you know I love how you kick things off talking about the art of anticipation and of course you use the example of some legendary athletes like Cristiano Ronaldo can you elaborate a little more for listeners about that yeah so there's a um there's a great video on YouTube um that's definitely worth watching if you're if you're in working in this space uh, and I'm sure actually a lot of your listeners will be familiar with it but uh, Ronaldo is kind of in a warehouse uh, on on a football pitch and he's he's got someone crossing the ball in for him and he's got a, he's got a score except that whenever the the ball gets kicked, all the lights go out and he gets pitched into complete darkness. <clears throat> and um, But he's still able to score even though the ball's, you know, even though he can't see anything, he's still able to actually convert these crosses into goals. Um, and the reason that he's able to do this is the same reason that, you know, baseball players are able to hit the ball that's travelling at them faster, you know, 90 miles an hour. Same reason that cricket players and tennis players are able to react so quickly. And it's because they actually know what's going to happen before it happens. They are able to anticipate the direction of the ball before it gets kicked because they pick up advanced cues uh, from things like body position and you know the spin on the ball or whatever that they, they just know ahead of time and that's what separates them from amateur athletes you know they have this ability to almost predict the future based on their experience and their thousands of hours of practice yeah it was amazing a few years ago i was watching uh, roger federer at wimbledon and yeah, the speed at which the serves were coming in at you, just think there's no way he can react in time. And of course, he was always seemingly at the right place at the right time. So that art of anticipation is obviously something that's shared across all sports, right? Yeah, I think the thing with Federer is if you watch him, he just seems to have so much time. You know, he just he just glides around, he's so graceful. And the reason that he's able to do that is because he's he's literally got more time in a way because he knows what's going to happen sooner. So he's got more time to prepare himself to make the movements. And that's how he's able to kind of glide around the court like he does. In your book, you also write about the high-speed decision-making being another area that sets uh, athletes' brains apart. And you also share the story of Welsh rally car driver Elfin Evans. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I went up to I went up to North Wales, and I had a, a uh, so Elfin Evans is, is the uh, he's a he's a rally driver, so you know time runs across all sorts of uneven surfaces, gravel, snow, etc. Anyway, I had a I I got in his car, I got in the passenger seat, and had a little uh, a little ride with him and. It was terrifying, <laughs> to be honest. It was just like, you know, bumping around this, this forest over these like dirt tracks, sliding around on the gravel. And I think that's the first time it really clicked for me, just like how many decisions athletes have to make per second. You know, and you, you don't really think of these things as decisions, but they are decisions about how much uh, throttle to use, how much to turn the steering wheel, what gear you're supposed to be in. And you, you have to combine that with things about, you know, what your next move is, what corner's coming up, the tactical position of the race. And there's, hundreds of thousands of decisions that are getting made over the course of, you know, a, a timed run in a rally race. And clearly athletes need to be able to make these decisions quickly, but they also need to be able to make them in a way that's, you know, that there's only like a limited amount of information that you can hold in your head. And yet they're able to somehow process all the information and make these decisions without, you know, 
without overwhelming them, without being overwhelmed by the sheer amount of information, the sheer number of decisions they're being asked to make. And what's going on at a brain level? Because obviously with something like, you know, rally car driving, you know, even extreme sports, obviously, people just sort of revert back to this innate function rather than being kind of stuck in that thinking brain. Can you walk folks through that uh, progression? Yeah, so there's this, there's this psychological uh, idea called Miller's Law, which is about how much information you can hold in your head. Um, and it's, it's generally used for things like numbers or words. So the, the rule is seven plus or minus two. So most people will struggle to hold more than seven pieces of information in their head, whether that's numbers or, you know, uh, names or whatever. And, and, that's, and we, to, to get around this, we use processing strategies called chunking. So we might uh, combine the numbers into longer numbers. So if you're trying to remember a phone number, instead of remembering each individual digit, you might remember it in groups of three or four numbers. And a similar thing goes on with, uh, you know, physical actions as well with decisions. So in order to reduce the the mental load on your sort of conscious brain, on your working memory, you start to make these skills automatic. So over time, um, so it's like, you know, when, when Elfin Evans, the rally driver, first learned to drive, he would have been like any of us learning to drive, he would have been very consciously aware of what he's doing. He was, would have been constantly thinking about whether he was in the right gear or, you know, what pedal he needed to be pressing, like where his hand should be on the steering wheel. But the more you practice, the more automatic these skills become and the more, the more resilient and robust they come, they become. And, um, you know, so eventually he's able to do all these things without even thinking. And, and in the brain, they move from being controlled by the prefrontal cortex and they move to areas like the basal ganglia, more automatic, more primitive areas. But this frees up his kind of higher mind to then focus on other things like tactics or, you know, thinking about what corners coming up. It allows him to plan ahead because the base skill is being taken care of like subconsciously. And that's definitely accentuated when you're a rally car driver, I imagine, in the, in the forest at those speeds and at those corners, right? Well, it's absolutely essential. You know, if you suddenly get, get in your own head and you're like, oh, what gear do I need to be? And then it's all over. You know, it's, it's, it's not only going to impact your time, it's probably quite dangerous if you end up, you know, trying to do a hairpin turn around a corner in the wrong gear on a mountain. Absolutely. And, you know, if we look at things from the other end of the spectrum and sports where there's a lot of uh, time to think about things, uh, sports like golf and of course in your book you mentioned a study where you know depending on whether professional golfers were going for you know a birdie to improve their score or just a par there was markedly different things happening in terms of brain function can you walk folks through that yeah so so we talked about kind of how as you learn a skill it becomes more and more automatic and uh, the prefrontal cortex kind of seeds control to the the basal ganglia and other areas of the brain so what happens when but when athletes are under pressure, what can sometimes happen is actually that, you know, they get nervous or, you know, they get stressed and the prefrontal cortex kind of seizes control again of something that should be automatic. And this fluent kind of skill that you've developed over years of practice suddenly becomes as if you're doing it for the first time. You suddenly revert back to thinking about every move. And that's not what you want to do if you want to perform a skill like putting uh, reliably and consistently. You don't want to be thinking about it too much. And uh, yeah, overthinking it is, again, just the result of the prefrontal cortex kind of interfering, butting in or like hijacking uh, what should be an automatic skill. Yeah, it's amazing how in sports like golf, I mean, I know a few years ago, 
Um, Kevin Na, professional golfer in the U.S., he was he couldn't even take the club back without, um, you know, forcibly having to to have three or four or five attempts at, at just taking his backswing, which, you know, as you mentioned, would have been something he learned when he was three or four or five. And uh, of course, the yips in golf with putting as well, and other sports like tennis, that sort of first serve where there's just so much time to think that the that part of the brain can really get involved and really throw athletes off. Um, so the yips are actually really interesting from from a neurological perspective as well because. Um, and I think we're going to come on to this in a minute, but uh, the, the yips are almost a, a result of not quite of kind of being under pressure. They're almost a result of your brain changing too much. Um, but perhaps we can come back to this when we talk about neuroplasticity. Um, the the, the um, example I always think of of, of kind of this uh, prefrontal cortex uh, seizing control is Jordan Spieth a few years ago was, you know, miles ahead. Um, I think it was the US Open, I can't remember. And um, you know, suddenly in the last, like, you know, nine holes just completely collapsed and end up losing. And it's just a classic example of, you know, absolutely fine until the pressure is, or, you know, until you're inside of the prize and then you start overthinking it and you just lose the ability to do the simple skill. And what are some strategies then that, um, you know, whether traditional strategies or strategies now with, with technology that can help to athletes to overcome some of these pitfalls? So traditional strategies are just, uh, you know, things like whistling a tune or, you know, singing to yourself in your head, things that keep the prefrontal cortex busy so it doesn't interfere. Um, there was a really interesting study um, done on penalty shootouts. So they basically got uh, a group of uh, semi-professional footballers to take penalties either in an empty room or in front of a crowd. And they obviously, in front of a crowd, their performance generally deteriorated because of the pressure of being watched by their friends and peers. But they found that if they got the uh, footballers to squeeze a, a squeezy ball in their left hand, then that performance uh, deficit disappeared. You know, they were as good as they had been the day before in an empty room just because they were squeezing a ball in their left hand, uh, which is, you know, there's all these sort of like quirky things you can try and do to keep your prefrontal cortex occupied. Yeah, that's remarkable. I mean, it's uh, the question is, are they allowed to be able to bring that ball on when it, when it counts during the World <laughs> Cup this year? Or? Well, I don't even think you need, you, you, you could actually just clench your fist, you know, you don't True. even need to be holding anything. So the way it works is because your um, the left prefrontal cortex is the area of the brain that kind of interferes in automatic processes. So uh, by squeezing a ball in your left hand, you activate the right hand side of your brain because your uh, your brain controls the opposite side of your body. And that draws neural resources, it draws blood and glucose away from the prefront, the left prefrontal cortex, which is the interfering part of it and therefore makes you less likely to choke under pressure and, and more likely to be able to perform your automatic skill without interference yeah it's impressive stuff how that connection between just the thinking brain the automatic brain and some of these uh, techniques that can help to free up just the natural skill uh, of the athlete and um, if maybe we can yeah. also circle back to, to, to neuroplasticity maybe just a quick definition for folks and perhaps you can describe the connections between things like bdnf and dopamine and how those play a role in neuroplasticity yeah so neuroplasticity was uh and, and this is a, a very common uh sentence that's used to describe it so it's, it's cells that fire together wire together so basically the more you do a particular skill the stronger the connections that you use in your brain to, to perform that skill the stronger they get so the more you have a thought the stronger the neural pathway for that thought becomes and the more likely you are to have that thought in future. Um, it's like electrical wiring. And the other thing that goes on with neural uh, plasticity is this, this uh, thing called myelination. So my, myelin is the kind of uh, 
if you imagine a copper wire and, 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 and you know, just a real copper wire, and then you, you think about a wire with a plastic coating around it. So myelin is that plastic coating in the brain. So when neurons get myelinated, they become, uh, they can carry messages faster and they can carry more information. It's like the difference between dial-up and broadband um, or between 3G and 4G. If we want to use a more modern uh, modern example. Um, For sure. But um, so, yeah, practice the reason that practice makes you better is because practice uh, changes the neural pathways and it physically changes the makeup of the brain and connections get stronger. You get more myelination, you're able to perform the skill more quickly and, um, you know, more robustly. And that's what, that's effectively neuroplasticity. And it's also really interesting because the more you, so as you learn skills and as you do, things and as you move through your life uh, your brain changes to reflect what you've been doing so for example we talked about Roger Federer Roger Federer will have a much larger area of his brain devoted to controlling the muscles of his arm and his hands than a non-tennis player because he's used those muscles so much that and he's used those neural pathways so much that they physically grow in size actually absolutely but there was these in the Victorian era there was this kind of uh, this kind of junk science called phrenology of you know, taking skull measurements to try and predict people's personalities. Um, and that's obviously nonsense. But actually, there is a kernel of a little bit of truth somewhere in there and that your brain does reflect the way your, your brain won't physically change shape as a whole. But the way it's kind of laid out internally will shift and change as you learn new skills over time. And, and, and this, is, this has actually been mapped out in athletes. So there was an, a study with Neymar, uh, the football, the Brazilian footballer, and they found that the um, area of the brain that controlled his feet was bigger than you know a non-footballer, and it was bigger than a semi-pro footballer, and it was even bigger than you know an average professional footballer because he's the best of the best. He had the biggest area of his brain controlling, you know, his feet. That's incredible. So that's neuroplasticity in a, in a, a nutshell. And of course, things like uh, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, exercise, obviously uh, a big promoter, uh, stimulus for BDNF. How does that tie in and dopamine in with the neuroplasticity? So BDNF is, has been described as sort of a miracle growth for, for neuroplasticity. So this is a, a, a protein that is released when you exercise. Um, and it basically, uh, and, and they've, they've done experiments where they kind of grow neurons in a, in a lab and they sprinkle this on, probably not sprinkle it on, but they <laughs> apply it uh, to these neurons and, you know, they, they sprout new connections and they kind of grow. And uh, this is why exercise is, you know, really good for your your brain it kind of uh, stimulates the release of bdnf and uh, it creates new connections and then as obviously those new connections can then get stronger and you know you can get better at whatever it is you're trying to learn or whatever it is you're trying to do um dopamine is a, a neurotransmitter um and it's kind of the uh, reward neurotransmitter so whenever you uh so dopamine is often cited as the sort of the thing that we're all addicted to. So whenever you refresh your Facebook feed and, you know, there's a new post at the top, you get a little burst of dopamine. Or, you know, whenever you uh, complete a task that you set yourself, you get a little burst of dopamine. It's the, it's the brain's way of rewarding itself for completing whatever tasks that you've asked it to do. Um, but dopamine also strengthens neuroplasticity, so it strengthens the connections that exist already. So that's the kind of mechanism by which... Uh, cells that fire together wire together it's because of dopamine and uh, and the sort of complex arrangement of neurotransmitters that that carry messages between neurons 
Yeah, I had uh, Dr. Stefan Guiné on last year talking about uh, you know dopamine's reward and the reward system, obviously in terms of hyperpalatability of foods, and then that driving that uh, that re reward system, unfortunately, for for uh, consumption of, of excessive consumption of you know sugars and processed food, etc., contributing to the, uh, obviously weight gain, obesity epidemic. But it's it's amazing how um, obviously in extreme sport and in, in, in sport as well, we get this dopamine release and. Of course, it's something that's definitely um, plays a big role in a lot of extreme sports as well, correct? Yeah, so dopamine, so extreme sports are often talked about as being kind of adrenaline junkies, you know, people that are chasing uh, an adrenaline hit. Uh, and, and while that's true to a certain extent, you know, you get the dry, the dry mouth, the sweaty palms, the heart racing. But actually, a lot, if you talk to a lot of uh, adventure sports athletes, they're not really in it for that anymore. You know, they're not in it for the, the sort of raw thrill of, of doing it. And those that are, don't actually last very long because they take too many risks. Like I talked to a lot of base jumpers for the book and those that are chasing the adrenaline actually end up either quitting the sport or taking it too far and, you know, dying uh, in an accident or whatever. But actually a lot of these extreme sports athletes are chasing not adrenaline, they're chasing dopamine. Uh, so in the book, I call them dopamine junkies because dopamine is the, as well as being the reward neurotransmitter, it's also the novelty neurotransmitter. So it's what we, get when we experience new things and and these athletes are always kind of trying to push the boundaries in order to experience new things so you know mountaineers explorers they're all dopamine junkies not adrenaline junkies yeah it's amazing how exposure to those types of things as well you know as you mentioned in your book you know when they initially get this big dopamine hit from from jumping off of a mountain or a, a building then obviously the more they do it the, the less of a stimulus they get and then for, you know as you mentioned for a lot of them these other factors become the more driving components versus the, the ones who keep chasing it unfortunately it's it's uh you know go too far yeah exactly it's, it's and i mean it's fascinating it's, it's a fascinating study in psychology but but it's all kind of driven by these brain chemicals basically and of course you know, every athlete has had a feeling at some point, elite athletes especially, that, you know, getting into the flow, feeling like the basket is, is just massive, they can't miss, the game slows down, they feel like they just can't do any wrong. Um, you know, what's going on in the brain during this state of flow? So flow is great because I think it's something that we've all experienced to some extent or another. Like, you know, if you're, you know, working on something and suddenly two hours have passed, that's, you know, that's flow. Um, so in the brain, there's a few things going on. So, uh, it kind of depends what measurement tool you use you can kind of see these different things so if you measure it using um, eeg which is kind of measuring the electrical activity in your brain uh, what you see is a, a decrease in in brain coherence um, what that means is that the different areas of the brain uh, normally communicate with each other quite a lot but actually that that drops when you're in a flow state so the areas of the brain become a little bit more isolated they stop talking to each other as much as they normally do so that's one thing that happens. Um, you also get this kind of cocktail of neurotransmitters that that uh, that focus your attention, but also simultaneously kind of calm you down, um, which is really interesting. And then the final thing is this um, this thing called transient hypofrontality. So um, basically, what that means is that the blood and, and glucose neural resources flow away from your prefrontal cortex and your more sort of higher level areas of the brain and they flow towards uh, the more sensory areas of the brain your you know your vision your visual processing areas etc uh, and that's why you get this kind of sense of heightened you know heightened perception and this sense of kind of time slowing down um and actually there was there's some really interesting studies that kind of 
show a link between uh, the brain activity you get in a flow state and what you see in monks when they're meditating. And there's a lot of crossover there, which is very interesting. Yeah, that is very interesting. And of course, as you mentioned, you know, anyone who's, whether it's work or writing content or these types of things, you get into the zone and you just you just go for, for hours and it seems like minutes and everything's everything feels great. And then of course, you get the opposite days where hours and hours go by and then barely any work gets done. So, you know, for people listening in, is there a is there a formula to try to help folks get into a better state of flow? There is, there are, there are um, 17 <laughs> different things that you can look at. There are 17 flow triggers. Um, there's a really good book called The Rise of Superman uh, by Stephen Kotler, uh, which I would recommend if, you, if you're interested in flow specifically. He, he goes into a lot more depth than I'm able to in my book. Um, Terrific. But um, yeah, there's, there's some main ones are uh, kind of focused attention. So you need to be in an environment where you are focused. So even it's, it's like little things like, putting your phone on silent or putting it in a drawer somewhere can have a massive impact on your ability to get into a flow state. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is kind of immediate feedback. So if you're in a, if you're doing a task where you get immediately immediate feedback on how well you're doing, that's uh, another really good way of getting into flow. That's why video games are so addictive. And, 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 you know, when you're playing a video game, you know, you are in a state of flow and, and flow is addictive and that's why people get addicted to Tetris or, you know, any 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 kind of game, you know, even if it's something as simple as that, uh, because it gives you this kind of immediate feedback, um, and you'll focus your attention on it because you have to focus your attention on it, otherwise it's you know game over. Um, and then the other thing is kind of this idea of it's got to be challenging. You know, you don't get into a flow state when you're doing kind of monotonous stuff that's well within your abilities. You get into flow when you are kind of pushing at the edge of what you're capable of. Um, and uh, in his book, uh, Stephen Kotler actually recommends kind of 4%. You should be trying to do things that are 4% harder than your current ability level. And, and obviously, that's quite hard to quantify for something like writing content. But, you know, for athletes, it, it makes a bit more sense. Uh, and, you know, so you're, it's not so easy that you're getting bored, but it's not so difficult that you're getting bored. You see what I mean? You know, it's, it's kind of right in that sweet spot. Um, and those are some of the some of the ways of kind of triggering flow that, that you know, but there are there are other ones as well. Other more, but those are the main ones. Yeah, it's it's interesting that four uh, percent is a good uh, general recommendation. It gives that idea that it's just to be a little bit more challenging than the baseline. Um, and it's interesting you mentioned sort of challenge to skill ratio there as well in terms of mm. uh, just being um, inundated or being really absorbed in your material. Because I definitely, you know, doing my taxes, I've never gotten into any kind of flow. So that's that's definitely one to. Uh, to avoid now what about what about things like meditation can meditation help with flow so i mean so i, I talked about the the study earlier so meditation is uh yeah i mean it can because it's kind of the same brain state according to what science suggests anyway um it's, it, it's kind of activating the same areas of the brain so um there's a a kind of and you can you can kind of reverse engineer it a bit. So when you if you meditate, you kind of get the same cocktail of neurotransmitters that you get during flow. So if you are about to perform a task where you need to kind of be in a flow state, uh, you know, a few thirty seconds of kind of deep breaths and and kind of you know calm sort of reflection can actually have a massive impact on that because it just helps get your brain into that uh, you know physiological state that that appears both in meditation and in flow. Yeah, it's incredible how, um, you know, the breath and being able to activate the 
parasympathetic nervous system and the vagus nerve can really help to to flush out a lot of that thinking brain and get back into um, just a lot of the innate um, reactions and dampen down the sympathetic response. So really, mm. really interesting stuff. Okay. Um, in terms of technology these days, you know, where are we at in terms of um, obviously, you know, being inundated with with updates and social media and various things can cause a lot of nervous system stress, but we have also technology that can help potentially to support flow or meditation. So are there any that come up on your radar as being able to support uh, the brain and performance? Yeah, so there's a lot of different stuff. So uh, so to take it back to what we talked about at the start, so anticipation is, is one area where there's been a lot of work done at kind of training people's skills of anticipation and high-speed decision-making using uh, computer programs, using software. So this is things like uh, you know, iPad apps that can train you to uh, read pictures in baseball or, you know, uh, that kind of thing. And the, the, the general concept is that if you can figure out what makes the best athletes, so, you know, we figured out that we think that what makes the best athletes in the world different is the fact that they're able to kind of zero in on these advanced clues about what's going to happen next more quickly. And the reason they're able to do that is because they've got thousands of hours of experience. But, you know, we can take a shortcut, right? If we know that footballers look at their opponent's you know hip position in order to predict what they're going to do then we can train amateurs uh you know we don't have to put them through the same 10,000 hours of practice we can just say you know look at the look at the opponent's hip position and you can kind of uh, massively increase the amount of experience that you can get in the same amount of time using technology so you know in a training session in cricket for example you might be able to see in, in real life you might be able to see you know one delivery every 30 seconds right but if you use an app or if you use a video screen or if you use uh, virtual reality you can see one delivery every five seconds you know which is like massively increasing your experience in the same amount of time so you can kind of cut that you know that famous 10,000 hour rule you can kind of cut that down uh, and it takes much less time so that's one example um, you can also use technology to kind of simulate pressure situations so you know this could be by um and then and making sure that your mental skills are kind of more resilient and more robust under pressure. Because the more you practice in a pressure situation, the less likely you are you are to kind of uh, choke under pressure when it comes up for real. And obviously pressure is difficult to simulate, but technology can kind of help on that front of view, whether it's kind of from a physiological point of view of kind of uh, simulating the environmental conditions that you're going to face or by, you know, uh, encouraging you to kind of practice your skill over and over and over again under different types of psychological pressure um and then finally uh there's this kind of more far out stuff around uh, neural doping and things like that so we talked about bdnf uh there's uh some uh you know academics some people are trying to kind of uh create shortcuts to neuroplasticity or kind of trying to boost neuroplasticity using uh you know drugs or using uh electrical stimulation so there's a technique called a transcranial direct current stimulation which some people claim can enhance learning enhance neuroplasticity and also actually kind of uh, act as a kind of way of kick-starting your flow kick-starting yourself into flow or making you more likely to go into a flow state by actually physically electrically stimulating the brain yeah it's really interesting stuff and are there certain then sports activities um, disciplines where the at the moment, that looks like it holds more promise than others. So, um, in terms of the uh, the, the kind of t- uh, transcranial stuff, it, it's, yeah. it's probably a little bit. Um, it, I mean, I don't think the science is that robust yet, and in, in it, it's ready to make 
you know, that were ready to kind of make recommendations on that front. But um, one interesting area is probably endurance sport, where um, a lot of new work kind of suggests that your physical endurance is actually not limited by your body, it's limited by your brain and your brain's, uh, specifically your brain's perception of effort. Um, so if you can use some of these technologies to um, reduce how hard your brain thinks it's working, you can actually unlock, you know, an extra 10% from your from your body. So, you know, your your brain is the, the handbrake on your physical endurance, not the other way around. Your, your brain is a limiting factor. And if you can use some of these uh, technologies to kind of trick your brain uh, into letting your body go for longer, you can eke out more performance. And because that's quite a, uh, it's not a decision making, it's not a kind of a higher level uh, cognitive ability. That's one area where potentially these things can start to have an impact uh, sooner rather than later. Yeah, that's really fascinating stuff. I had uh, Professor Tim Noakes on last year and mm. talking about the central governor theory. And of course, yeah, this idea of obviously the brain holding us back, you know, much so as, as a safety measure as well to ensure that uh, people and athletes don't kind of overdo things. But, you know, that buffer zone in between, as you mentioned, of being able to potentially get a little bit more, especially in sports and elite sport, where the margin between uh, being first and 10th is, you know, half a second or, or less. Exactly. And uh, Samuele Marcora is a, uh, a researcher at the University of Kent. He's kind of built on a lot of Noakes' work and, and came up with this kind of idea of, of or, or done a lot of work on this idea of perception of effort and looking at ways that, that you can manipulate it using uh, subliminal messaging or, you know, all this kind of stuff, which is really, really interesting. And if we circle back to the sort of virtual reality, I know, um, and, you know, you mentioned him in your book, Vin Walsh, uh, talking about some of the limitations mm. in certain sports of trying to simulate uh, reality with, with different, uh, you know, video game scenarios and the application there. Are there, again, certain areas where we see better application than others? Or um, I think it depends on, like, some sports, uh, it's obviously easier. It depends, almost depends on the amount of realism you're able to embed in the, uh, in the program. And actually, it can, you know, if you don't do it well, and I think Vin Walsh argues this, that it can be damaging if you don't do it properly. So um, in cricket, for example, uh, you know, it's, it's now thought that like, actually bowling machines, which allow batsmen to get much more experience, are kind of damaging because they break the link between the visual cues of the bowler running in and the subtle movements of his shoulder and his, his elbow and his, his wrist joint. Uh, and they break the link between that and where the ball ends up because obviously it's being bowled at you by a machine. Same with baseball as well. You know, if you go to uh, hit a few balls in front of a machine, it's not you're not actually getting the experience that you need. You might be training your kind of raw reaction time or the, the physical movement that you need to play the shot, but it's not helping you predict the future in the way that elite athletes are able to do so. Um, having said that, if you are able to create VR, and I don't think anyone's really achieved this, if you are able to create VR that that contains all the elements of the real thing, then like, there's no reason why it shouldn't be able to be a, an effective training tool but there was, it's so complex because it's not just the visual you know it's, it's auditory it's the haptic feedback um there's a, a researcher called kathy craig um at queen's university of belfast who's doing a lot of work with uh, kind of trying to build in haptic feedback into some of these uh, vr experiences um and again it's it's a it's a long road but you know and i think we're probably still just at the start of it but i think you know in time this will be be a kind of a key part of sports training for a certainly for professional teams and maybe even for amateurs as well. Yeah, it's really fascinating stuff. And, you know, of course, in your book, you talk about the sporting IQ. 
And we just uh, re- recently had the you know the NFL Combine, the NFL Draft, and of course one of the main measures of athlete smarts is the the Wonderlick test, especially for yeah. quarterbacks. Uh, and in your book, you review some of the research on quarterback performance and the Wonderlick test. Can you share that with folks? Yeah, so this is really interesting. So the um, this is a, I think this is from an ESPN uh, feature. So this isn't a scientific study, but they 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 revealed that the average score in the Wonderlick test for a quarterback was twenty four uh, compared to sixteen for a running back, and I guess that kind of makes sense if you think about the the mental demands of those positions. Of course, that's got to make a lot more decisions and hold a lot more information in his head. Um, but actually, it turns out that there isn't actually that much correlation between how well you do in the Wonderlick test uh, and how well you actually go on to perform in your first season in the NFL. And um, I think uh, from what I've from what I've heard anyway, that, that coaches are actually putting much less emphasis on the Wonderlick test as they used to. Because they realise that it's not actually predictive uh, of sporting performance. However, that's not to say that there isn't a uh, intellectual metric that you can use that is predictive of sporting performance. So, um, executive function is this idea, this this kind of suite of skills that people have uh, includes things like working memory and your ability to flexibly switch between tasks. And um, some researchers kind of suggests that executive function is a good predictor of how well you will perform at uh, certain sports like team sports like uh, American football or soccer or, or tennis or you know not tennis but you know kind of decision sports I suppose uh, you could call them so you know there is a if there is a sporting IQ I think it's probably more got more to do with executive function than it has to do with traditional IQ. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I remember reading in your book there that Dan Marino obviously one of the greatest quarterbacks ever his Wonderlick score was pretty pretty poor and i think some of the athletes who had retested i guess like any kind of standardized test they'd done the standardized test a few times and of course had these tremendous scores and of course didn't pan out so um yeah exactly. i mean iq iq you know iq well the one like test is an iq test and iq tests have big problems with kind of cross-cultural validity and, and if you've never taken one of those tests before that's probably going to be a bigger predictor of your performance than some underlying you know intelligent quotient for sure for sure Listen, Amit, terrific insights here. You know, before we wrap up, last couple questions for you. Mm. Uh, what's the evolution, do you think, of neuroscience and sport? So I think we're actually, at, we're still at a very early stage. So um, I always go back to the example of, of uh, Premier League football, right? Um, so, you know, in the mid-90s, uh, Arsene Wenger, who's just retired, uh, the Arsenal manager, kind of came in and, and brought about this, this revolution in, in nutrition. And players went from, you know, going to the pub after training and, you know, having bacon sandwiches for breakfast to kind of eating slow-release carbohydrates and, you know, being banned from drinking and all this stuff. And it, and it brought about a massive increase in performance. Um, and then, you know, 10 years later in sort of the mid-2000s, you had the same thing, but for sports psychology. So this is things like, you know, getting visualization and then kind of looking at the emotional side of things and bringing in, bringing in experts to kind of help uh you know, talk to players and kind of counsel them and help them get the most out of their performances. Uh, and now, 10 years after that, I think neuroscience is the next step. This is the next revolution in sport. Uh, and I think it has the potential to be as big, if not bigger, than, than those, those other two. You know, neuroscience could be bigger than nutrition and, and bigger than psychology if it's implemented correctly. Because, you know, most sports, uh, certainly team sports, are more about decision making than they are about physical conditioning obviously there's a there's a limit that you have to reach or kind of a, a benchmark that you have to get to in order to perform but you know, you know beyond that there's a reason that the best football player in the world is you know 
a five foot six guy from Argentina, right? And it's because <laughs> of his brain, not because of his body. Absolutely. Uh, and, and Amit, if uh, you know, for folks listening in now, whether um, athletes, practitioners, you know, where can people get started now? What kind of what take home message would you give them um, if they wanted to to dip their toe and and start to incorporate some of these strategies? I think the I think the uh, I guess it's I mean what I would say is don't rush into technology and in my book I talk about a lot of technology because I think it's you know it's important to kind of highlight that these things are going on but I think actually the underlying principles can be implemented without needing to splash out hundreds of pounds or dollars or or whatever on a on a VR headset um you know it's it's about knowing how the brain uh, learns new skills so you know and 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 how how new athlete how athletes you know what makes athletes kind of stand out so it's anticipation high-speed decision-making and ability to perform under pressure. And if you can figure out how athletes anticipate, where they collect their advanced information from, uh, and what processing strategies they use in order to make high-speed decisions, you can then take that information and apply it to the, the people that you're training or apply it to your own performances. And this will differ from sport to sport, but you know you can, if you're able to figure out you know, what, advanced cues athletes look for then you can start looking for those same advanced cues yourself and if you're able to figure out what processing strategies what uh, what schemas or heuristics athletes use then you, you you know you can implement those into your own thinking and i think that's more what it's about really it's about the sort of that and that, that, i think that's why the mental side of things can really kind of help improve performances yeah, you do such a great job in your book of giving some examples of, of how folks can do that in terms of, I think it was, was it Peter Check, the goaltender, catching you know, ping pong balls mm. and all these various strategies that are yeah. you know, uh, sort of cost effective and get the job done. So really, really cool. Um, finally, I'm at last question here, personal note, shifting gears. I'd love to ask my guests all about their morning routines you know, for yourself, very busy guy. <laughs> how do you start your day? Are you a coffee guy? Is it exercise? Are you writing first thing in the morning? I'm not. I'm actually, funnily enough, I'm very much not a morning person. Uh, I uh, I don't get going until about eleven o'clock. Um, I mean, I'm I'm obviously uh, yeah. No, I don't really have much of a, a morning routine other than kind of getting dressed and going to work. I'm not a coffee person or a or an exercise person in the morning. I'm, I'm very much a, a night owl, um, well, like a lot of writers. I think. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like you've got yeah the night owl chronotype. So you're getting uh you're getting all your all your hours of sleep accounted for, which is great for productivity. So. Yeah. Well, well done there. Well, listen, um, where can people stay connected with you and keep up with your fantastic work and uh, research and, of course, uh, pick up the book? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at, uh, at Amit Katwala. Um, and the book is called The Athletic Brain, How Neuroscience is Revolutionizing Sport and Can Help You Perform Better. And it's available on Amazon and at all good bookstores. Fantastic. Well, I'll definitely include those links uh, and the book discussed here in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions for Amit or want to leave a comment on today's episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. And of course, if you enjoy the show, please take a minute, subscribe on iTunes or your favorite platform and leave us a comment. Thanks again and see everyone next week. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcasts.